HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware, a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Oh, yeah. So here we are. It's, uh, <laughs> it is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And today I'm really excited to introduce a guest, uh, someone who I've admired for a long time um, and who is the uh, director of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, otherwise known as the ITATP. Her name is Shafali Sharma. She writes a lot about uh, the meat industry, climate change, and other subjects. She also hosts uh, really great webinars. I highly, highly recommend the IATP site. It's packed with information, not just about the United States, but about global matters of interest uh, involving food production, uh, trade policy, and climate change. So um, do look for that, IATP.org. Um, she is, uh, so the IATP, she runs the, uh, sorry to be so scatterbrained here anyway, because I went off script. That's why I like can't do two things at once. I can't read <laughs> and then say what I really want to say. But um, from oh, the global... Let me interject here. I'm not the director of the IATP. I'm the director no. of the European. No. Yes, I was just going to get to that. But okay. thank you. <laughs> yes, director of the European my office. Kill me. <laughs> <laughs> but you are actually one of the most visible faces of the IATP, to be honest, Shafali, because you're, wow. I mean, you're the only person I can actually name. Um, and so, and I do follow the organization. So they talk about from the global, global production of feed grains to meat processing and um, retail. 
and uh, Shafali's current work and publications focus on the economic, social, and environmental impacts of the global meat industry. I managed to say that without having to read it, and then I just repeated myself. So there you go. That's the kind of host I am, just a little scatterbrained here. So Shafali, you just wrote, um, well, I just read one of two pieces. I think piece number two has not yet been published, but you are in the process of writing a second piece on the discharge of effluent from the hog uh, concentrated area feeding operations in North Carolina. And just as a backdrop for you, Shafali, I have done several pieces, uh, several shows about uh, what has happened in North Carolina in the wake of Hurricane Florence, um, the meat industry oh, wow. being a favorite of mine. Uh, but I've had like Rick Dove on from the um, Waterkeeper Alliance. Uh, I had the Department of Environmental Quality come on who had a completely different story than Rick did. Um, I imagine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I just, because North Carolina is essentially the dumping ground for basically everything except nuclear waste in uh, in the United States, they really, they just have more than their fair share of, of unfortunate uh, environmental disasters following virtually every storm. Um, so, anyway, you have written, uh, that piece was wonderful, it's called Hogwash. I wrote this down and I didn't put it in here. And it's aftermath. <laughs> and, and the aftermath of, of Hurricane Florence. Yeah, and it was really, it is about how, uh, you know, something like 30 lagoons essentially breached. Uh, some of them really broke completely. Other ones just flooded over the top a little bit. Um, so you tell us a little bit more about what, uh, what happened in North Carolina, just to refresh my listeners' memories, and then also um, what kind of response there was uh, from both the state and especially from the corporations involved. Um, yeah, first of all, Katie, thanks for having me, and it's you're great welcome. that you're so interested in this issue. The The blog that I wrote was called Hogwash and its Aftermath, Climate Change and Corporate Accountability After Hurricane Florence. And I wrote it, um, and actually a second blog was written by my colleague Ben Lilliston, and it's oh, I did read talking that. about I read that. climate risk, yep, and, you know, corporate responsibility considering, uh, you know, these uh, companies actually say yes, climate is a risk, but then, then what do you what are you guys going to do about it? Is the question right? Um, right. So in this particular blog, uh, I kind of veered from you know all the although I did mention of course all the manure bleach uh, the manure uh, lagoon breaches and all of that, but that was so extensively covered. And what we wanted to highlight was another aspect that was overlooked, which was. Actually, so what is, we're learning that these intense hurricanes are being caused by climate change. And That's there are right. newer and newer studies that are coming out that are saying, look, here we are, climate change is happening now. We've already had a 0.5 degree Celsius warming, you know, in the last uh, two, three decades. And now we're reaping the results. And that means North Carolina is in that uh, zone where you're going to get more and more Severe hurricanes, and and I thought it was very interesting that uh, you know the biggest culprit of agricultural greenhouse gases are actually the livestock industry because they generate a lot of manure, which generates a lot of methane and nitrous oxide, the two big greenhouse gases that are uh, you know the reason for climate change. Uh -huh. um, and actually, these gases are uh, much more potent uh, than, say, just carbon dioxide. In fact, nitrous oxide, which comes from uh, animal poop, 
mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide in a short period, a short period being a 100-year time horizon. Yikes. So actually, so what's relevant about that is that means you can actually do something about it and see a dramatic impact in mm-hmm. a short period of time because it's a short-term gas that can create a lot of problems in the short term, but equally, if you do something about it, can really reduce the climate footprint, right? Yes. And methane yeah. is 30 times more potent of a greenhouse gas over a 100-year uh, uh, time period. And so this is really important when it comes to manure lagoons in particular, because what we saw in the run-up to um, Hurricane Florence was because people wanted to avoid... Uh, you know, these big floods of manure that was full of all kinds of bacteria and antibiotics and all kinds of really harmful, toxic slush that went on to make many people sick. They were actually trying to spray this manure lagoon onto their fields, which in a hurricane situation, you can imagine, is not very helpful because what's going to happen is... A, you're going to emit a lot of greenhouse gases when you're spraying, and B, you're going to then spread them all over the place once there's floods. So whether it's inside the lagoon or outside doesn't make any difference if you're going to spray it on your field, um, you know, a few days before the hurricane. Well, they, I mean, that um, is the standard practice, though. I mean, let's let's make that clear, that, that uh, yeah. pumping out the manure, pumping out the slush, the slurry, it's essentially a slurry, and pumping that out and spraying it on agricultural fields is the norm in most, um, hot, certainly almost all animal agriculture that is aggregated in these concentrated area feeding operations. So, so that is not an unusual practice by any means. That's just how they manage the levels in those lagoons. And the True. problem with the hurricane was that you had, because of the heavy rains, that, that what had been sprayed on the fields didn't have a chance to be absorbed by the ground, and it went right into the water table. And that's, that's what made that so particularly egregious in my mind. Yes, but also I think they were pumping out extra, like they were pumping out more than they would have otherwise. Oh, for sure, because they were worried <laughs> yeah. that they would overflow, and quite exactly. correctly so, because so many of them, exactly. in fact, did overflow. So yeah. um, in the current model, like the way we run these concentrated area feeding operations, the contract farmer, the guy who is the hog producer, in other words, he's we've, we've chickenized the hog industry, as they say, and so both in the chicken and in the hog industry, it's a contractor who contracts with an aggregator, a big, um, you know, integrator like Tyson, or in this case, like Smithfield, which is the biggest producer in the state of North Carolina, right? Yep. Um, And so they, those guys are the ones who are running the farms. And I've spoken a lot about how unfair the contract system is, and especially with regards to managing waste. So is it, is it still true that most uh, hog operations are the ones who are left essentially holding the lagoon when it breaches? Exactly. That's my understanding is that nobody is going to help them. Right. They bear all the risk. Right. right, and 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 this is the problem with this model. Um, yeah. uh, you know, in in 1986, uh, North Carolina was like the seventh in the country that was producing pork, like the seventh largest. Thirty years later, it's like uh-huh. the second yes. largest. Yeah. You know, second only to Iowa, and uh, and of course, we've seen such a shrinking of the number of farmers who were in pork to just about 2,000 or so in North Carolina because. Um, 
because of the system. All the small producers who were not, who had far less pigs and were able to actually manage the manure in a much more environmentally friendly manner because then the earth around them can take it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, have all but disappeared, and all you have are these large farms that are producing massive amounts of manure. And I think the farmer is caught in a trap, to be honest, because they're completely beholden to the company in terms of what they have to do, how they have to do it uh, to get any of the profits, and they're pitted against each other in terms of competition. But at the same time, they have to bear all the risk, That's including right. for hurricanes. Right. And so it's a very crazy system that's actually skewed against the producer. Oh, no doubt about it. Do you know if there's like a crop insurance or any kind of insurance that they're able to access that helps them manage disasters like this? Like, I haven't looked into that to to be able to answer that question myself, but I wondered if you had. I have not looked into it, I'm afraid. Yeah, Um, but it's an interesting... I mean, I I would be guessing no. (laughs) But... I imagine more and more are looking into these kinds of insurances, so there may be some insurance for them. But again, that that cuts into their bottom line, right? Oh, totally. <laughs> Everything cuts into their bottom line. I mean, this this exactly. this model is so skewed against the guys who are actually doing the work that it's yeah. just breathtaking that it has persisted uh, and even excelled as well as it has. Because you would have thought mm-hmm. that the first few thousand farmers who bought into this would have said, hey, wait a minute. I ain't making no money, and I'm assuming all of the risk. But they don't. They keep doing it. It's very. I guess they don't have a choice if they want to farm pigs. That's how they got to work, or they have to sign up with a with an outfit like Nyman Ranch, you know. Yeah. So so now let's talk about Smithfield first. Let me remind people that there was a Chinese company called the W. Actually, it was called Shuanghui, but then it was Mm -hmm. Shuanghui was bought by W H Group. And the whole mess of those guys, those chi- those that Chinese company acquired Smithfield in 2013 for an incredible price, and um, it included you know hundreds of farms, uh, 36 I think it was 40 maybe 42 processing facilities, like a lot of infrastructure, um, which I have my own problems with uh, foreign companies acquiring our agricultural properties here. But anyway, do you know of any efforts that they have made um, to uh, sort of uh, you know, make some kind of plan for climate change now that this has happened like three or four times in the last five years? Yeah, good question. And I'm not sure that they've made this plan in response to this or rather just because they know they have to, given that increasingly more and more scrutiny is, you know, pointed their way in terms of the role that climate change, the the role they play in climate change. But last year, Smithfield announced that they plan to reduce their all their greenhouse gas emissions by 25% by 2025 uh-huh. compared to what they produced in 2010. So it's all in the baseline, right? It's all, all in the numbers, like what are you going to reduce it from? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, right. What level are you going to reduce it from? And uh, But the point is, Smithfield is essentially WH Group, which is the Chinese company you're talking about, which is now mm-hmm. the largest pork processor in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, the U.S. is only one part of its operations, right? Mm-hmm. The large majority of their operations are in China. They also have uh, operations in Poland and Romania and Mexico. So Smithfield saying they're going to reduce 25% by 2025 is like a drop in the bucket. But Okay, that's great. They, they want to do that. So what are they going to do? 
we came out with a report in June uh, that looked at the largest meat and dairy emitters, the 35 largest global emitters, mm. uh, and WH Group was one of them. And uh, what's interesting is at that time when we looked at Smithfield's plan, there was hardly any details as to how they were going to reduce these emissions. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I don't think this is a coincidence that on October 25th, just you know, 10 days ago, they came out with a press release that announced how they were going to reduce these emissions. And uh, um, basically they said that they're going to convert across 90% of Smithfield's hog finishing spaces uh, in North Carolina and Utah and Missouri over the next 10 years, convert manure to energy, which basically means that they're going to create a whole bunch of biodigesters, right? Yeah. And they're going to tap the gas, and then they're going to sell it to Duke Energy, which has a contract with them for 15 years. Now, imagine, I, I like the irony of that, because Ooh. both Duke Energy and Smithfield are implicated in all the flooding and mess, right? Duke Energy for coal ash and right. Smithfield right. for all this manure. So it is interesting that the contract that they have, you know, to actually disperse this energy to homes. Now, North Carolina, there's something also very interesting in North Carolina. It is the only state out of 24 that have renewable gas that counts pig gas as a renewable gas. Really? It's the, really? Only, it's the only state that has uh, decided to yeah, specify that they want a certain quantity of pig gas. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know who the vested interests are and who pushes for these kinds of bills. Um, but there's a lot of pushback, obviously, from environmental groups, from groups that care about public health and others to say, why would you incentivize such a filthy system, right? <laughs> um, because even when you convert manure into gas, you still have solids that you have to deal with. You still have to deal with all the pathogens. You still have to deal with all the antibiotics. You have to deal with the public health concerns that are created when you have so many pigs being uh, reared at the same time. Right. Um, right. So it doesn't deal with the more systemic problem of having really large facilities in close proximity of each other. What it does do, though, is allow you to have carbon credits and incentives to actually be subsidizing this stuff. Yes. So yes. you're actually encouraging the growth of this industry rather than actually saying, you know what, this is a completely outdated uh, and actually out of our time kind of uh, way of doing this. And we need to recognize that in North Carolina, things are only going to get worse when it comes to climate. So what we actually need to do is get rid of these operations in these zones, uh, figure out another way to farm, and, uh, you know, go back to eating a lot less of this crap and eat genuinely, um, you know, healthier meat that is produced in a, in, a, in a way that respects the environment and people and animals. So. Yes. Yes. You know, I, I, one of the things that really interested me in your piece, um, in your, your blog post, as opposed to Ben's, which was also excellent, was you described the growth of Smithfield slash WH Group in North Carolina. You had some really good figures there. Can you remember? I didn't write them down. So can you remember what some of those were? Because just to refer back to your um, to their 
you know, them saying that they would reduce their greenhouse gases by 25% by 2025 or whatever it was. Um, Mm -hmm. Talk about how they're expanding, even as they say they're going to reduce their footprint. Oh, are you talking about how they were profiting, like what their profits were? Uh, Well, we we can certainly talk about that. Yes, why don't you talk (laughs) about that first, and then we'll talk about how they're actually planning on opening up more of these concentrated area feeding operations. Um, Well, yeah, they made, like, uh, last year, uh, Smithfield was worth, like, $15 billion. Well, WH Group was, right? And, uh, and they recorded like a 7% increase in their profits in 2016 compared to before. Mm. And, uh, and even this year, like the 2017-28, they're saying that, again, they're going to have a 7% increase in hogs processed. Uh, so that's like close to a million more pigs, and that will add like 5.7% growth in their total revenue. That's, that's what I uh, yeah. w- w- talked about, which is that they're actually going to you know, add more pigs so this is what we challenged in our report called Emissions Impossible, which is that how can you guys be making these commitments about cutting uh, emissions, and you guys are going to obviously cut emissions through these biodigesters and all of that. So what you're essentially saying is you're going to be cutting emissions per kilo of meat, but you're going to be raising so many more pigs and producing so much more meat. Right. What about those emissions, Right. Yeah, that's what I thought was such an astonishing, you know, sort of uh, dichotomy there. It's like, yeah, yeah oh yeah, you're going to reduce your your footprint by twenty percent, and yet you're you're growing at seven percent a year or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, well, a seven you know, percent increase in processing in profits, but, yeah, but you're, you're adding a million growth, right? Yeah. You're adding a million pigs to your roster there. You know, I, yeah. it doesn't really add up. Yeah. So, so that leads me yeah. to the question, what, are there any regulations that govern the number of concentrated area feeding operations that can be located in a, one particular area? And also, are they, you know, when um, the previous governor back in the, uh, I guess in the early 2000s, I I think his name was Hunt. He he had he gave like uh, tax credits so that they would relocate out of the floodplain. Is there any kind of program like that in play now? And are there any regulations about how many of these facilities can be built? Yeah, you, you you're talking about Governor Bob Hunt, yes. uh, like less than twenty years ago, and he announced a plan to phase out all open air lagoons and manure spray fields, right? Yes. Um, yeah. But then there was like this major campaign by the industry, like two point six million dollars that they spent, saying, "Look, look, these problems are really because of the municipal sewage systems rather than the pork <laughs> operations." Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, and and we know that the problem continued to fester. I mean, we mm-hmm. saw it in Hurricane Matthew. And mm-hmm. I think that they did manage to pass, correct me if I'm wrong, um, something that was a rule about not opening new uh, CAFOs of a certain capacity in certain areas. But I think that there has been plenty of loopholes and problems. And obviously there was even a plan to kind of buy out certain uh, lagoons, but um, not lagoons, sorry, operations. Yes. But I don't think that that has played out. Well, so I think they ran, result, out of, they ran out of they ran out of money, essentially, uh, right? So many okay. people applied to get bought out that they uh-huh. literally could. They had to pick and choose. I think they had you know over a hundred applications for buyouts, and they only had funds for about sixty. And then, wow. uh, yeah, and then there was like a little bit, tr- a little, another little trickle of money a couple of years later, and then that was it. And that it so far it hasn't. Uh, Im- 
it hasn't continued in any meaningful way. Let's take a quick break right now, and uh, we'll come right back with Shafali Sharma from the uh, Institute for Agricultural Trade Policy, Agriculture and Trade Policy. Uh, We're going to talk some more about um, North Carolina in the aftermath of Hurricane Florence. Stay tuned. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni, the host of Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I was introduced to Le Creuset cast iron skillets many years ago in my first restaurant, Muggsy's Chow Chow in the East Village. Le Creuset has the superior heat retention of cast iron paired with unparalleled performance and the ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. And I love easy cleanup after running my own restaurants in New York for 23 years. Le Creuset Original Heirloom Cookware is backed by a lifetime warranty. Their bold colors and timeless designs allow for an expression of personal style in the kitchen and beyond. Head to lecreuset.com slash hrn, that's l-e-c-r-e-u-s-e-t dot com, to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code hrn. Okay, we're back. This is uh, What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'm on the phone with Shafali Sharma. Am I talking to you in Germany, by the way? Are you in Germany? You are talking to me Is that where you live? Yeah. No wonder we saw each other in Italy then, because that's just a hop and skip for you. Really? Weren't you you in Turin? Sorry, folks, but (laughs) weren't you in Turin (laughs) last February for the Festival de Giornalisto Alimentari or something like that? I wish I was, but I wasn't. Oh, well, then I just (laughs) do not remember where I met you. I could have sworn it was there. Isn't that funny? Anyway, it was in February, and they brought me there because of my book, and I had the most wonderful time because I really didn't have to do anything, and I got... Delicious pasta. Yeah, it was a really, it was a great trip. I really enjoyed it, and I loved Turin. But anyway, let's talk for a second. Let's go back to the concept of corporate responsibility, because after all, your blog and Ben's blog both dealt with the fact that even though these corporations, and you know, let's let's pull it back to more of a global scenario now, because it's not just Smithfield or WH Group. It's it's literally everyone involved in animal agriculture. All of the big players essentially assume no corporate responsibility for any of their environmental impacts. So, mm-hmm. what are the measures? Do you think uh, that? Um, you know, people can, that voters can play or, or what is a way in which we can start, um, promoting the idea that corporations should, uh, you know, I don't know if they should pay a carbon tax. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the carbon tax. I don't think as I learn more about it, but, um, what, what are the measures that could be done? Smithfield says they're going to create biodigesters that they're not going to put one on every single CAFO. That's just not going to happen. Right. Well, the, well, they're saying they're going to do 90% of their CAFOs, which I find really interesting because, you know, we were doing research on uh, Smithfield's uh, energy plan, and earlier I think they had announced they were going to do it on 30% of their CAFOs, and that was going to provide energy to 1,000 homes, mm-hmm. or no, 950 homes. And in their recent press release, they said they were going to do 90% of the CAFOs, and they're going to provide energy to 1,000 homes. What? So I'm really what? curious how, yeah, I'm really curious how they're going to, 
how did they did the math when they had it at 30% and now they have it at 90%, but only 50 more houses get the energy? Um, and not only that, <laughs> why, why is it such a small number? Like that's barely even worth doing. It costs, I mean, I know from touring a Cargill facility about five or six years ago, they had a biodigester at one of their big processing plants, and they gave me a you know big song and dance tour about it. And I must say, it was very impressive. I happened to know at that time, this is, we're talking six, seven years ago, that it cost approximately two point two million dollars per biodigester to create wow. to create the the plastic, the rubberized thing that goes over the lagoon, and then they have you know a whole system of they introduce some sort of bacteria that eats other bacteria they pump the methane they run the plant off of it essentially and then the solids they are able to the water is clean to the point where they can pump it back into the colorado river and the solids are then used as fertilizer uh as their primary they're basically denatured i don't think that they still have the antibiotic loads uh or the other drug loads that are inherent in uh, animal agriculture at this scale so I, I, it just doesn't seem completely <laughs> realistic yeah. to think, even though they're making a lot of money. Um, well, I think this would be a really interesting inter- follow-up interview for you to do. Like, mm. so they, they, they talk about this pilot project that is being run by a company called Optima KV, and they're using five anaerobic digesters to capture and clean biogas on five, Smith, five of Smithfield's contract farms. And I think... Uh, well, I guess the pilot project is called Optima KV, and it's run by some energy project developer called Optima Bio. Uh-huh. Um, but the point is, uh, yeah, how much is this costing? And when you say you're going to do it with 90% of the farms and you're going to help the farmers do this, what does that actually mean? Who's going to foot the bill? Yeah. Uh, how is this going to happen? And is it actually economically viable? Because... Um, yeah. And does it do... As you said, 2.2 million. Um, this is something we're going to be looking into, which is, you know, why hasn't has biogas taken off in Europe? I mean, has it been economically viable here? Because it's not... It just hasn't taken off to that extent, right? Because there are, there are economic um, realities that just don't make it financially viable, I think. Right. And if it's right. not profitable, nobody does it. No question about right. that. Um, that's an interesting question. I am going to follow up. I'm going to look up this company, and I will definitely try to get them um, on onto the show because I'm I'm fascinated. I actually bought stock in another company called Biontech that was supposed wow. to be a closed loop thing. This was I, I interviewed them like literally ten years ago, Shafali. And, I'll forward uh, you the press release from Smithfield that has the name of these companies. I'm going to look. Yeah. Anyway, we're gonna we're gonna move right along here. So we do know that managing waste is the single most difficult aspect of any animal industrial animal facility. So when we talk about when they when like for instance when you were saying that they you know 10 years ago they said oh well it's not really the hog farms it's municipal waste. Well hog farms are completely untreated. Municipal waste is treated it goes through a waste treatment plant. Hog the problem with these animal uh, you know CAFOs is that there is no treatment plan. They are just okay. sitting in open lagoons, and they're not just emitting methane and nitrous oxide. They're also emitting ammonia and uh, hydrogen sulfide. I mean, basically, you'll die if you fall into one of those things or spend more than about 90 seconds in one. I learned mm-hmm. that when I was doing my, um, when I was doing my book. Um, but what, like, what other, besides the biodigesters, are you aware of any other me- means or method by which some of these uh, lagoons can be mitigated? in terms of their noxious qualities? 
No, I'm afraid not. And I think it's in large part because of just the scale at which this is being done. There's just simply too much manure yeah. that is, it's impossible for the surrounding water, ground, earth to be able to absorb that much manure. Um, and so the digesters is what they're coming up with. And I think the latest plan, uh, Ben and I were talking about this, is also then converting the solids out of this stuff into fertilizer and selling it back on the market. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, it's still untreated, right? It's it's got to exactly. be. I don't know if they're going to clean it up. I have to look into this technology that uses this dried manure and turns it into fertilizer. But again, the point is, you have an industry that is highly polluting that is actually usually paying farmers, you know, below the cost of production yep. <laughs> um, yep. and yep. exploiting workers in the chain, et cetera. And, you know, all the environmental impacts from feed to fork. Um, but then you're incentivizing them by taking their waste products and then and they get to sell it again. So they get to make profits two right. or three times. Off of that, although uh, there is the added, the, there is the, the happy fact that they're reducing their pollution footprint to some degree anyway. Well, this is, well, this is what we need to examine, actually, um, is how much of the pollution footprint is actually being reduced through mm-hmm. these technologies. It's, yeah. it's the same yeah. thing that I say. Like, uh, on the one hand, you're reducing some of the impact, but then you're incentivizing much more production based on these incentives. So are you actually reducing overall the emissions like the climate doesn't care if you're reducing per pig the climate cares whether you're reducing that's right that's right and if we don't reduce significantly by 2050 we're going to be dead anyway yeah, at least that seems to be what the un decided on, yeah if we don't get on that track in the next 12 to 15 years yeah yeah we're, we're yeah. going to see a brave new world i can tell you that um, but one, uh, you know, one example, though, and but these are all small examples, uh, are like the farms like this organic farm in China, for instance, it's called the Little Donkey Farm, and they actually have like this whole way of uh, dealing with this manure. Uh, I don't know exactly the details of it, but, it, but you know, it's, it's kind of like a regenerative process where they, they are able to... Um, use the manure in a, in a really good way, not just composting. Um, but the point is, it's, it's a much smaller scale, right? So you yeah. fundamentally have to change the scale with which what, what you're doing. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah. if people are not aware, uh, hog farms typically go from anywhere from 10,000 to 50,000 hogs in one right. concentrated area feeding operation, otherwise known as a CAFO. So now, you, yeah. because you live in Germany, and also because Germany is a big pork producer, as is Denmark and Holland, um, and Spain, which has, I just learned from a friend of mine who lives there, that there's a big movement in Spain to curtail the growth of the hog industry because they're starting to pick up on the American model more and more there. And I'm wondering if, um, if other countries are finding solutions uh, like, for instance, have the Netherlands or the Danish uh, or, you know, Denmark uh, found better solutions for managing their waste than we have in the United States, where we don't have the same kind of environmental laws uh, that protect our land the way uh, Western Europeans uh, frequently do. I think this is an ongoing problem here as well. I know that this is definitely a problem here in Germany, where... Um, you know, a place like Lower Saxony, where there's a high concentration of, of pig farms, there is a huge pollution and environmental problem. There is opposition to CAFOs. 
there was a huge movement of protest for uh, CAFO that was going to be situated, um, I, I don't remember, like within 100 kilometers of Berlin, which is where I live, the capital of Germany. And there was massive protests that we don't want this thing here. Right. And so there is this rising awareness, but unfortunately, the big magic bullet is still is still waiting to be found. Um, and and it's been a struggle to actually regulate the industry here in Europe as well. Mm. Um, I think Europe is still better in terms of identifying where these sources are. Like in the U.S., we have a fundamental problem of 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 uh, facilities and operations owned by these companies to be actually classified as CAFOs and where these CAFOs are. You can't even know that information. Yeah. So, you know, in the U.S., we're struggling with just basic transparency. <laughs> that is we true. don't know where they are, how much they pollute, and what they're supposed to do about it. And we don't consider it like point source pollution and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. Uh, it's a real problem. I think that that's a, it's a different battle here in, in Europe where... You can know where the sources are, but the industry is still powerful and there are still games to be played between the different European states to try to not get consensus on particular measures. Oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I never think yeah, about never that, think but about that. because it's the European Union, every state has its own, they have their own agenda to pursue. Uh, as mm-hmm. a, yeah, that's a fascinating wrinkle to this problem. Um, right. So... <laughs> <laughs> I guess the rest of the world is essentially um, following the U.S. model, unless you can point to anybody who's rejecting it in any major way. Is everyone going yeah, for going what we're doing? I know the Chinese are buying into it, obviously, whole hog, as they say. Um, <laughs> and actually, the Chinese are really struggling with it right now because they, they really did go whole hog on it, and yeah. now... And they did a few studies, uh, which, of course, the results that have not been published in the in the public. But uh, apparently, what they found was so alarming. I think that they have actually, which is why imports are going up in China, right? Yeah. I think they they are realizing that uh, the pollution, their their environmental footprint, the pollution is becoming very significant. Well, with uh, all this production, and so now they're trying to diversify, they're trying to import, they're trying to get facilities in other countries and, mm. and import it, and, you know, Smithfield is part of that that operation. No question. The acquisition of Smithfield was definitely to take the pressure off of uh, China in terms of just providing enough corn and soy, as well as the incredible pollution that their current uh, hog and chicken operations uh, produce there. In fact, one of the statistics that I read when I was re- researching for my book was... Um, was that they have polluted uh, something like 60% of their agricultural land with heavy metals and antibiotics and something, some extraordinary and comparable amount of drinking water is also compromised, which, you know, I'm doing a whole series on water quality compromise, um, yeah. compromised water quality in agricultural communities across the United States. And, and that's why I wanted to do this series on, on you know, what's ha- what happened in North Carolina, because I think it's an object lesson to, for other states mm-hmm. as Absolutely. we go forward. And it certainly is an object lesson for Europe, for Europe to look at as they adopt our model you know, to going forward, recognize the uh, the tremendous uh, downriver costs of producing cheap mm-hmm. meat. Absolutely. So now is the time for you to promote yourself shamelessly and the IATP. <laughs> so go for it. Go for it. 
Um, so yeah, so the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy is actually a remarkably small organization for the amount of work that we do. We have about 12 staff in uh, Minneapolis, and I'm here based in Germany, and uh, and we have a colleague in Washington, D.C., and basically we want sustainable food and farm systems, and we believe that both agriculture and trade policy are really critical to that equation. And um yeah, we're trying our best to show how uh, the food system is hijacked by a very few um, corporations and what we need to do to really take that system back. And um, so there's, there's my dedicated colleagues working on climate change issues on the ground, working on rural climate dialogues with communities and we have a farm-to-food program to try to, particularly in Minnesota, to see if we can get healthy food that's locally sourced into Minneapolis schools. Mm-hmm. And then we do global work, like the kind of work that I do, mm-hmm. um, both on trade policy but also on looking at how powerful the meat industry in particular is and why it's such a excellent lens with which to see how extractive agribusiness can be and the model that we really need to shift to. Absolutely. Shafali, thank you so, so much for joining me today. Um, I'm going to have you back soon so we can talk about NAFTA. All right. Because <laughs> I know you've that'll done a lot of work my, around that. That'll be my colleagues, uh, Karen Hansen-Kuhn and Sharon Treat, and they will be very okay. happy to speak to you. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, folks, for listening, and thanks to my sponsor for uh, sponsoring this program, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.